Billy Sheehan. What are some things we can say about Billy Sheehan, this amazing human being? Well, for one, he's our guest this week on episode five of No Guitar Is Safe. Two, he's not a guitarist. Well, he does play guitar quite well. He is, three, a bass player. Now, he's no ordinary bass player. In fact, if there's one bass player that deserves to be on this show, it's probably Billy Sheehan. First of all, his style is so innovative. Starts off in hard rock, goes in so many different directions, and it has so much in common with guitar players. Man, does he have sort of a synergy with us guitarists. He plays harmonics, he bends strings, he plays with distortion half the time, literally. He does tap notes and giant strummed chords. I mean, come on, it's a man after our own hearts. But the other big reason he deserves to be on the show is that he has had such an amazing career sharing the stage in the studio and having head cut and duels with some of the world's greatest guitarists. For instance, Steve Vai, Paul Gilbert. He'll get into all of those years, you know, the David Lee Roth years and the Mr. Big years. And also his new band, The Winery Dogs, featuring the amazing Richie Kotzen. Love that guy. Soulful player, soulful rocker, soulful singer. And they have a new album called Hot Streak coming at you October 4th. Be sure to check it out. So Billy is one of the more interesting interviews we could possibly get on this show. You're also going to hear about other guitar players he's interacted with over the years, including Edward Van Halen, Ingve Malmsteen, Billy Gibbons, and also you're going to hear about his first concert ever, which was a good one. Now, before we get started, I just want to tell you real quickly how I became friends with Billy. It all started around 2006. You know, Stuart Hamm was wanting to put together a band to back three different bass players on the B Times 3 tour. And he knew me because I had played on two of his songs on one of his solo albums. And then, of course, he had seen me open some shows with my rock band at the time for Joe Satriani back in the day. So naturally, when he wanted a guitarist from the Bay Area where I was still living, he called Mr. Lauren Lieber. Haha. <laughs> Which is very true. And Lauren is a freaking badass guitar player and also a friend of mine. We've got to get him on here someday if we can. But Lauren was unavailable, so I got a call, and it was quite a gig, playing one hour with each of these great bass players, Stuart Hamm, then the amazing Jeff Berlin playing jazz and fusion, a little bit of bebop, a little bit of this and that, and of course playing with Billy Sheehan, and never having met Jeff or Billy, I didn't quite know what to expect. There was no rehearsal. You just learn the songs in three weeks and show up in Milwaukee and throw down. Man, they both turned out to be such amazing human beings. The reason I'm telling you this is partly because in about the second minute of our interview, there's kind of a moment that I kind of wish I had over again. Because Billy heaps a huge compliment on me for my playing on that tour. And naturally, I get a little bashful when someone says something that nice. And then what I wish I had done was reciprocated and said what I feel, which is, damn, Billy, what an honor it was for me to watch you every night. You're one of the greatest bass players of any generation just greatest people who ever played a fretboard, period, guitar or bass. And I'm sitting there watching you do all that every night, hanging out with you in the van, hearing your stories. But I was trying to think, why didn't I say that? Why? I mean, I graciously said thank you to his compliment, but I guess there's a couple of reasons. One is kind of like when your boss compliments you, you don't always go, yes, well, good job yourself, sir. Not that Billy's my boss, but you know, I was kind of working for him. Secondly, you know, I still, we all as musicians under the surface, man, we're all critical of our playing. And he's saying all that stuff and I'm still thinking to myself, yeah, but you know, in your set, I know I could have done those hammer-ons and tap stuff better. Like the Paul Gilbert stuff on Addicted to That Rush and, and the Shy Boy stuff that Steve I did. 
or, you know, with Jeff Berlin, I could have hit those bebop licks a little better. Or, you know, with Stuart Ham, I could have maybe got a better strat tone when I'm taking over Eric Johnson's parts on Stu's song, Lone Star. So all this stuff's going through my head when really I missed the moment, which is, you know what, Billy? Fucking amazing to play with you every night and listen to you. So if you're listening, back at you, Billy. That was an amazing opportunity for me. Thank you very much. Glad we cleared that up. So let's get the show started. One quick thing. The Facebook page is going well. That's your place, man. That's your treehouse. That's your clubhouse. That's where we put up little photos and videos and just little secret stuff just for us here in this little club, which is growing nicely, I might add. So now we're going to hop in the copter and we're going to go over the hill to Billy's amazing abode. He has a wonderful house, man, with just great Tibetan art everywhere. It's almost like a museum. The feng shui is perfect. And then you go into his studio and you encounter all these amazing instruments. So, let's go. Enough talk. Let's rock. She and ladies and gentlemen in the house. <laughs> How are you, Jude? You know what I love about you is that the second you say, hey, play something, you just play. You're not like, well, let's see, what should I play? <laughs> no thinking aloud. You just like, you go off, man, take off like an energizer situation. Well, it's very kind of you. Well, I just remember uh, being on tour with you and just, uh, you just kicking complete ass every night. It was just a really a, just spectacular guitar player. I'm not saying that so you do think. a nice interview and ask me easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer the hard ones, actually. <laughs> But uh, it was, uh, just for the record, what a, what a joy that was to uh, watch you perform every night. It was just really great. Oh, I learned a lot. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, that was a, that was a long gig, three hours a night, I think. You yeah, were doing you, one hour. You, up with, you, you played with everybody. <laughs> I just yeah, I mean, popped up when I had to. So I know I'm looking at this beautiful green bass, but what happened to the bass that was on the tour with us, the one that had all those miles, remember? You had to... You had a similar green bass, but I think you had an accident in England yeah, or something. It did. It did. I think it did a. I think it was a Devil Slingshot uh, tour that I did. Tony McAlpine and Virgil Donati, and the stage had a little door on the side and steps to step down into the dressing room. And they the steps I didn't know were removable, and someone oh. decided to remove them. And I stepped, and I had the bass in my hand. wasn't on You know, the strap wasn't around me. And I had to catch myself with something, and I caught myself with a bass, and that was that. Poor what? thing. So we, we, as a matter of fact, because the neck has the uh, LED things in it, right? We had to. I don't think they're ever going to be really fixed again. So I'm going to have to make a decision at some point there. Just, just either, you know, glue the neck back together, and I'll donate it to charity or something. But I don't think I'll ever actually be able to play it again. Oh, there's a lot of places I would want to put that on display or something, too. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. How many years did you play that particular prototype? Or? Hard to tell. I usually, once I get a bass that I groove into myself, and I groove into, I'll hang with it as long as I can. What was it like when you fell backstage after that show? Did you, Were you pissed off? How did you, you feel at that moment? Oh, it was heartbreaking, because every bass I have, there's a thing about each one. And I've got a bunch of, let me see, one, two, three, four, five six uh, maybe about 12 bases in here and there's a bunch in storage too but there there's a thing about all of them every instrument in here and i'm not a gear whore and i don't hoard equipment uh 
And on, when I'm on tour, I usually only have two instruments with me, the main one and a backup. Uh, so fortunately, I had a backup with me on that one. But yeah, it was heartbreaking to see any instrument go. You know, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame. And these, it turns out the Yamaha Attitude Basses are really tough to get even for me. So I've, got, I've had a black one on order for about two years now, and it still is, still is not here. <laughs> wow, you can't get one. What about the so rest? So I get emails from people all over the world that are trying to find them and stuff. But the good news is once one goes up on eBay or somewhere, it gets snapped up right away. And there's a, there's a Yamaha Attitude Facebook page where all the guys that own the Yamaha Attitudes or are interested in them or make their own version of the Attitude, whatever, they're all on there and we exchange. I go on and chat with them and hang out and answer questions because I really want to back up the instrument uh, as far as customers uh, being pleased with it and yeah. quality control and all that. Yeah, Yamaha's a great company that way too. Yeah, they are really They're good. Solid. They're huge though, so it's hard sometimes to get a personal answer. So if I can jump in there and help yeah. out, I always do. But... Uh, we just did a Wandery Dogs dog camp. We did a little yeah. camp out in the woods uh, with all, all the fans. And there's some, three or four bass players had the uh, Attitude Bass with them. And, uh, you know, I go over it and show them how mine was set up and let them play mine and see the difference. And and I'm always real liberal with stuff like that, too. You know, somebody comes after a sound check, if somebody's hanging out, I'll, I'll show them through my rig and show them what I got, let them play my bass, and I get an idea about how it feels and oh, stuff. Yeah. I think it's important because uh, I, I wish I could have done that back in the day. Because if I could have you know, seen Tim Bogert's bass and actually picked it up and played it, I'd go, oh, man, I, I get it now. It would have, would have been a quantum oh, yeah. leap for me to realize what I should be shooting for, you know? Oh, yeah, you always learn so much if you pick up someone else's instrument, check it out, or if another great player picks up yours and plays, and you hear them through yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sound totally different through my yeah. gear. It's a funny thing. Yeah, it's it really is in your hands. Uh, when the first times we recorded with Mike Portnoy, we did some Rush tribute thing years and years ago. And Mike used to come see Talis, my old band from Buffalo, play. <clears throat> Before he was in any bands, he was he'd come see us play in New York City. We played at the this famous club called Lemoore's in Brooklyn. And um, he, as he tells the story, I think I'm correct on this. It was, he met the guys in Dream Theater because they're all kind of Talis fans. They would play uh, Talis songs and their first couple of rehearsals and stuff like that. Cool. That was pretty cool. Uh, so um, uh, Mike flew out to San Francisco. We were doing the record there. This was years later. And uh, he, I had a bass amp in the room, but it was kind of darkened out. And I, I'm, pl I'm, I'm playing, and he goes, man, your rig sounds just like it did back in Lamar. And I go, well, take a look. And it was a, like a single 15 in a plywood cabinet and some little things. just wanted to have a little air moving for the bass, but the rest of it was all direct. So at that point, I realized, well, maybe it is my hands that are making that sound. As much as a lot of manufacturers get upset when you say that, because they think it's their gear that's <laughs> making everything. And in the end, really, it is. You know, if you're really honest about it, it's it's a lot of the hands. It your is. hands on your guitar, you got a total unique right hand technique. Yeah. So automatically, as soon as you plugged in here today and played, it all came back to me. Oh, I, mean, cool. I, can, I recognize your sound. There's a tonality to it. So I think everybody has it. Not right away. Sometimes it takes five, seven, ten years to do that. Well, you know what Yogi Berra said? 90% of your tone is in your hands, and the other 50% is in your gear. <laughs> no, I think he said something slightly different than that. <laughs> so wait, let's just get the quick update now. The Winery Dogs, you have a new album that's really close. Yeah, yeah. It's, all, it's done. It's sequenced. It's mastered. They're finishing off the artwork, which always delays more records than anything else. And the new record called Hot Streak, and we got... Uh, a uh, bunch of songs we all wrote together from scratch, nothing left over from anything else. And uh, it was kind of cool. You know, we just got in a room and, and wrote. 
together as a band. That's great. Which is a, what a concept, because that's how everybody used to do it, you know? And uh, no outside writers, uh, no, no, uh, we produced it ourselves, but we used a guy named Jay Rustin to mix it. And the guy has a magic touch. I mean, we'd, I'd hear the, the basic tracks that were, you know, they were, everything was on. You know, the bass is on, drums are on, vocals are there, guitars, everything. And it's, uh, I guess I hear it all. It's okay. Jay would take it and suddenly would come back just like somebody hit it with a magic wand. Really, really, guy's a, a true uh, master at his craft, mixing. So uh, it was really interesting to see the variations uh, happen between just here's some basic tracks with everything at yeah. zero, uh, you know, moderate volume, and then he mixes it and it comes alive. And he's always been really, really generous to me on uh, the bass tone by turning the distortion up. Because <laughs> that's always, was always a bone of contention for some uh, producers. They didn't want to hear that distorted bass in there. Right. But oddly enough, live sound guys, they always would end up, uh, after they had mixed sound with me and whoever, whatever band I was in, I'd go out and see them with another band and they were making the bass player plug into a separate cabinet that was distorted so they could run that along. So the, the yeah. live sound guys got it, but the, a lot of the studio guys didn't. They wanted that, like the tone is here today, just totally, totally clean, nothing on it. Um, a little touch of compression. What I'm going through now is these BAE audio. Uh, it's a 1073 DMP, which is an input. Doesn't do anything. Just, just uh, basically buffers and is your basic first stage of gain. Uh, and it's all designed obviously around the Neve uh, uh, gear because it's all yeah. the same color as the Neve. And then they had this compressor that was just a, it's the uh, 10 DC compressor. Um, the guy came over and demonstrated it to me, and I thought, oh man, this thing is just so sweet. When you hear, you, I hear extra notes. Like actually, yeah, it blooms. It's got the bloom. Yeah, there's a harmonic content in the note, and it's just totally clean and straight. And it's great to practice like that because every little click and pop and mistake you make is you're naked when you're doing that. So I love to sit down here, totally clean bass, plugged in, quiet in the morning, and just just reinspect everything I do. And it's really heartbreaking when you see how bad you suck. You know, so, geez, there's so much work to do. But a couple of days, a couple of weeks into it, things start to come around. You really fine tune it, but I have to do that a lot because my it's a physical thing. But anyway, the uh, BAE stuff was just a, it's the perfect thing for that. I use that uh, as a, in a separate channel on all the winery dog stuff. Then I had uh, my low amp and my high frequency uh, amp with the EBS distortion pedal in there. I took my old pierces along with me too, but I ended up using the EBS it was just a little bit more used to it than the Very Pierce's nice. were. Well, cool. So now I'm really curious about how you've, you've, you've had this crazy career. This spent <laughs> so many adventures. We used to drive around the van, and you would tell us these adventures, and usually I would be suffocating with laughter. <laughs> that was good therapy when we were driving across, like, seven hours of snowy fields in, like, Ohio or something. But wh wh why did you first pick up a bass? What, what drew you to play music? Well, the... Um, my mom was into like Sinatra, Tony Bennett, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. The first show I ever saw was Bobby Darren. Uh, the first concert I ever went to was Jimi Hendrix. And then out, but I also saw Tony Bennett and Ella Fitzgerald together. So there was a, already a quality control built into it. I know now I like a, a lot broader uh, base of singer and player. For, for example, 
I remember talking to my sister, and she had bought a guitar when she was young, and she was going to play it and sing folk songs, but she kind of lost interest in it. So I was sneaking her room, and that's how I started when I was a little tiny kid. But we always had similar musical tastes. I remember I mentioned Johnny Cash to her one time. We, we laughed about it because you can't sing. You know, I love Johnny Cash now, yeah. and he can sing. But I learned about Johnny Cash and singers that were more feel and emotion. It was a whole new revelation to me. Similarly, in classical music, again, you know, the typical Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, Liszt, Rachmaninoff, all these guys are really, you know, all together and, you know, that's beautiful, incredible, grandiose arrangements, uh, timing as tight as can be and all put together. And then Debussy came along without that solid, insistent time of, of Bach or Beethoven. And it was a whole revelation to me. Then I fell in love with that stuff, too. So I'm glad I went through those elements of music. And they all contained, of course, there was bass and everything. But it wasn't until uh, I started to uh, understand from uh, my neighbor on the corner, Joe, he had a band. Uh, every block had a band or two on it back in the day. And Joe was a cool guy and he was a nice guy, always nice to me, and he was a bass player. And so uh, I would, I'd lay in my bed at night because I was a little kid and I could hear the bass off in the distance, you know, because it travels like you hear a subwoofer in a car coming, you know, 10 miles away when they got some big hip-hoppy subwoofer going. Totally. And, uh, and so my brother took me aside one time. We're listening to radio, and I, he's, some song is spinning. He goes, yeah, you hear that there? Yeah, that yeah, that thing right there. Yeah, that sound. Yeah, that's, that's bass. Yeah, like Joe plays. Yeah. So we really could understand. Because a lot of people, as musicians, we forget sometimes, they don't really, can't really always differentiate what's what. So uh, they don't always get what a bass. Most people do. But initially, a, a lot of people didn't. And they saw a shape with a neck on it. It's a guitar, right? No, it's a bass. What's the difference? You know, we were, I went through a lot of that in my life. Well, I love that meme on Facebook lately. Bass players, the reason your girlfriend dances. <laughs> you figure that out early on. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's great. I just played a gig with the Family Stone the other night, man. With, How you know, cool. Some of the original members. Uh, oh, man. Who's one. playing drums? The guy. Oh, man. Gregorico. He's a yeah, rock great. and roll Hall of Famer, man. He Brilliant. was there, man, throwing Brilliant. down. We were hanging out. It was so cool. And oh, first man. First they play that jam. So, yeah, that's the stuff. That's the. You're right, man. There is a difference between the bass and the electric guitar. You figured that out. Pretty yeah, for me, bass was the, uh, and in my mind, drums are always the most important thing. I'm a drum guy. I want to listen to the drummer. Drummer Jeff Berlin on the tour we did together. Was, uh, drummer's the most important guy in the band. Drummer drives the band. It's true. Uh, uh, you know, the, everybody knows the singer, but the drummer but the bass is the thing that gives drums a pitch so we're half rhythm half pitch uh, bass so it's a kind of a nice balanced thing uh and i think larry graham was one of the first guys to really in, in pop music one of the first guys to really emphasize the rhythm aspect of it as much as the pitch by doing you know he was the first kind of not the first slapping guy i don't know People listening to this who are hating me because I forgot who the first guy was. I don't know. I don't know who it was. But he's the guy who I knew oh, it to be. You know, one of those guys. So uh, it's interesting how bass uh, is that connecting bridge between. Because you hear drums playing. You know, oof, ah, oof, what what key are we? In? Oh, G, G minor. <laughs> By hitting the grace note, you know, so that it brings it all together. So Joe Hesse played the bass, and I wanted to be like him and. I went over to watch him rehearse, and uh, the guitar players had like little twin reverbs and deluxe reverbs, and he had this giant dual showman, and I thought, wow, that's. That. I, I had no idea that the bass was, you know, like like the catcher on a baseball team, and you're working the full time. You know, it wasn't like the glamour gig of being the pitcher, you know, so uh, like the lead singer, lead guitar. So I didn't care. I just love bass, and and I still do. I, I work as much now, maybe more than I ever did in my life. I'm. Every day, sitting where you're sitting there on my couch, and I just 
hit it and hit it and hit it constantly. I'm in the spot. (laughs) Yeah. What was the first tune that you remember really jamming on? Like, I got this. Running around the house playing. Uh, It was uh, Gloria. But it's on guitar. So we just had Brad Gillis on the second show, and that was his first tune as well. Gloria is probably one of the most, uh, I think of all songs, Gloria is probably the most utilized by guitarists as a launching beginning song, I think, everyone I know. Maybe Louie Louie, but that's almost almost the same thing. But on bass, uh, Paul Samuel Smith. On bass back then, that was like Ingve. Uh, we, we couldn't believe our our, uh, our our ears to hear Paul Samuel Smith, and there was no video, so you couldn't see him do it. But uh, one of the early call and response between guitar and bass ever was Paul Samuel Smith and whoever was the guitar player in the Arbors at the time, Jeff Beth, Jimmy Page, or Eric Clapton. Just a brilliant, brilliant player. Amazing tone and brilliant, innovative lines. And he was in tune. I've got a huge collection of garage rock in my iTunes. I'd say 99 out of 100 basses are so far out of tune, it's comedic. It's unbelievable how, how wrong, how out of tune they are. Like I am here today. Are you? No, it sounds great. Yeah, I noticed this thing. What's that Bob, Bob Marley song? <laughs> I swear to you, the low, the low string is out of tune if you listen to it. Oh, I got tons of this. Like they put it against the wall right before they did the take or something. (laughs) Yeah, so bass is, uh, and you know, it's because it's deep and low and heavy, and it's a little more physical than guitar in some respects. Not always. Uh, Some bass players play light and easy. Some guitar players hit it harder than anything. So there's never any way you can uh, give a generality that'll apply to everyone. But for me, it's it's a really a strength instrument, and I have to play it hard, and my calluses... My right hand. And eventually, they got to be. It takes me a long time to get them really up to speed for a live show. So, I try to. Uh, when it's time to rehearse, I usually go in like a couple days before with all my gear, and I start hitting it hour after hour after hour with just me with the with the gear, getting my my hands and calluses up to speed. And even then, I'm not really rolling until about two weeks into a tour. You know, I can I can get through a night and. Uh, I'll cut myself up a little bit, but it isn't until about two weeks into the tour. Yeah, yeah. I, Every tour we did together, you were definitely playing all the time in the breaks, you know. Yeah, you got to kind of keep it. <laughs> so what, how did you get Talus going? And then you guys went so far with that, and then you ended up in L.A. Yeah. You can tell us a little bit about all that. Yeah, it was my Buffalo band. Uh, we started out, there's a band called the Tweeds in Buffalo, and they had, like a, they had a 60s hit, like a, like a little ballad thing back in the 60s and the main guitar player was uh, Dave Constantino and the drummer was Paul Varga they also had a different bass player and a rhythm guitar player I actually played in the tweeds briefly towards the end but it was way after their hit and everything we were already out of high school playing in bars or doing it so it's kind of like a, a holdover so that kind of split up and we wanted to do a a band, myself and the guitar player, we found another drummer. We started Talus, and it was good, but uh, his the original drummer from the Tweeds, Paul, had a great voice. He was a great drummer, and you know, it was kind of they've been friends forever. So eventually, sure enough, he came back. We had the original three piece Talus, myself, Dave Constantino, Paul Varga. We went on like that forever, and uh, you know, a couple times we pr- split up and changed uh, members and things like that. But eventually, we got up to the point where in 1980, we were putting out uh, 
our own music. We had a record out. Uh, we showcased for premier talent in New York City, and they're the big booking agent that did uh, The Who and everybody, and Van Halen. And Van Halen had just come out. We were just crazy about him. We loved Van Halen completely. And sure enough, um, Barbara Skydell was her name. She was the agent. Uh, we went down to New York City and showcased. She loved the band. She said, man, you guys should be on tour with Van Halen. And we thought, <laughs> fat chance we're ever going to get our, our record wasn't even distributed nationally. So sure enough, we got a we got the call. We're going to open up for Van Halen. What? <laughs> we couldn't believe it. So we got a little uh, a little camper van. Hmm. They agreed to uh, carry our gear in one of their semis. So we just had the the, the camper van and nice. our crew, a couple crew guys. And we went out and we opened up for Van Halen. And we did uh, about thirty or forty shows with them. So what was the were... first night like when you're watching? Eddie Van Halen play. Un unreal. Well, we'd already seen him. They'd actually come out to a couple shows we played in Buffalo when they played in Buffalo. They came out once or twice. And, cool. uh, but at their worst, the worst night they ever had on that tour, 1980 Invasion, they were only spectacular. I mean, if they would drop down a bunch of notches and have a bad night, it would be just spectacular. They were on fire and just awesome. And just being on the tour was like a show, PhD in show business 101. Unbelievable. And uh, the way they ran the show, and the, they ran a tight ship, and it was just great. And they were nice to us, too. Eddie was really cool. Uh, Dave was, was nice. Michael Anthony, wonderful, wonderful guy. Alex, too. I love all those guys. And though, sure enough, at the end of that, Eddie uh, kind of gave me his phone number and said, don't tell Michael. And I thought, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, boy. For a long time, I never said anything about it, or I, did, I denied it. But, you know, we, had, we talked a couple times about me joining the band. And... Uh, the reason I didn't want to say that for so long is with Michael Anthony. I love the guy, and he's a friend of mine. I, I wouldn't wouldn't want to. It would make him kind of look bad. I think if if people found out that his band was going to be on his back, looking to replace yeah. him. In retrospect, I don't really think that was the case. But I think me, a new young kid from Buffalo, New York, come from Podunk, nowhere. They probably could have just paid me as a sideman, and I would have been as happy as can be. And then their their they would have all split in threes <laughs> instead of in fours, and uh, would have been a better business for them too. I don't know. But anyway, uh, then the next tour, every time Van Halen would tour, we could always go out and see him because we knew the crew guys and we'd go backstage, say hi and everything. It was really cool. But I love all those guys, Alex, Ed, Mike, and Dave. And Wolfie's doing a great job with the new band too. I'm, I would like to see Michael there, but su such is life. So um, summer of 85, we had a, in the interim between 80 and 85, we had a few other conversations about me possibly playing with them. One, one, one was... That was pretty definitive. Right, I went up and Eddie shook my hand and said, okay, we'll give you a call and the tour's done and fly you out. And then I saw Dave soon after that. And he goes, yeah, I heard you were talking to Eddie. We'll, we'll see you in a few months. I thought, oh, oh my God, this is it. So, uh, of course, I finally got a hold of Eddie and eh, we kind of changed our mind. We don't want to make a change at this point. So, okay, cool. Then they did 1984 record. And then I heard that Ed was maybe thinking of doing an individual solo record after that, and maybe not without the band. Said, well, I'll play bass, I'll play bass. Eh, maybe I'll give you a call. So out of nowhere... In Talos, now we're a four-piece Talos. The original two guys are gone. I got all new guys. Uh, all hell's breaking loose. Um, so uh, in one week, we got three phone calls. One was uh, Gold Mountain Records. Danny Goldberg went out, went on to uh, manage Nirvana, I think. They wanted to sign us. I said, wow, great. We're gonna. It's a, it was a national label, too. And uh, then the William Morris agency called and said, hey, we, we want to sign you guys as an agency. You want to do the Yngwie tour coming up? Starts in, in July in, uh, in uh, L.A., Wow, unbelievable. Third call came in, and this one was a little puzzling. It was uh, Dave Roth's office saying that he was doing a movie. He wanted to know if I could be in it. And I thought, what in the world is that all about? Turns out it was a cover story. He didn't want people to know. And he was always great with keeping the secret. When we started the band at first, he told everybody, you can't tell 
Don't tell anything to your family, girlfriends, no nothing. Everything goes on there. It's totally secret. So he kept it completely under wraps for a long time. So sure enough, I flew out to LA to start the tour with Ingve. Went and had a meeting at Dave's house. He said, uh, I said, so what's the thing with the movie? And he goes, well, it's not really a movie. It's a, I want to start a band. He goes, you know, are you in? I go, shook his hand. I'm in. That's cool. I said, I'd never leave Talos for anybody but Van Halen. David Lee Roth, close enough. Bang. He goes, I, you know, I quit Van Halen. I'll start my own band. So we, uh, we're on the lookout for guitar players. Steve Stevens was the original Wait, hold guy. Hold on a second. There's too much good stuff here, Billy. You got to <laughs> tell me, first of all, what it was like when you met this Ingve character and you're playing with him and you're watching him play every night. What were, what were your impressions of him as a guitarist? Oh, yeah. Ingve blew everybody away. Later on, when people, you know, they got into Ingve's personality and then it might have been a little coarse or harsh or whatever complaints they had about him, he was always great with me. I've never had a problem with the guy, ever. But I remember when, when everybody thought, well, Van Halen, I guess that's as good as it's ever going to get. Let's just everybody learn Ed's licks and we'll try to see what we can come up with there. And then suddenly Ingve came along and tore everybody's head off. And you could tell by the tone of the interviews in the magazines where all the guitar players are, oh, I haven't heard any Ingve. I never heard. I don't know what. And instantly people got real defensive right away because he scared everybody. And when he came out, that was a whole other world. On stage, we go up first, of course. And I think, okay. Ingve is coming up after me. I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna do, I'm gonna pull everything I got out of the biggest, deepest bag of tricks I got, <laughs> just because I didn't want to get destroyed by him. I just want to be in competition a little bit, as much as a bass player could be. So I would hit it super hard. He'd go out there, go, yeah, watch this. And he, by the end of the tour, both of us were like on <laughs> on fire. It was hilarious. And Very few would, bass uh, players could compete in a shred contest with Ingve Malmsteen. Well, uh, I don't know if I was competing. I was kind of running along behind him in the dust, but I, uh, I'm I could sure see you him kept off it in interesting. The <laughs> you kept it interesting. But uh, and he did some amazing things. He would walk up, to, you know, get on stage, uh, grab his guitar, and his, his guitar would be like a quarter step out of tune with a, a stock Fender vibrato. And he'd go, one, two, three, four, five, six, in. You just tune him that fast, huh? Unbelievable. I mean, he really, people, I think they purposely started to get fixated on personality things because he was so good that you you had to think of something to tear him down because you were about to get your ass kicked. And he was, was and, and then this blues playing was amazing and sound check was just unreal and he knew a million songs and, and it's just, just an incredible uh, phenomenon. Great really. tone too, like a crazy clear tone. Huh? Oh, brilliant. Now um, I want to get to as much as we possibly can. There's something I forgot to ask you what you said earlier. What was your impressions when you saw James Marshall Hendricks at your first concert? Where did yeah. you see him? Buffalo War Memorial Auditorium. He Jimmy. played in 60... Maybe 67. When did he pass away? 70? Yeah, it must have been because he played Woodstock. This was, I think it was 67 or 8. I'm not sure. Wow. But it was it was a tour behind. It wasn't the uh, RU experience. It was the uh, Axis Bold is Love Tour, I believe. Right. And Soft Machine opened up. Pre-Holdsworth Soft Machine. Matter of fact, I found a bootleg of that show. Nice. At another night. Uh, I'm scouring through the inter- internet. But Jimmy came out and he kind of, the whole place just went crazy. He was kind of standing on the base of his mic stand and playing. It wasn't moving around much, you know, doing fire. You don't care for me, I don't care. You know, the fire, maybe he opened with that or? Yes, opening up with that. And then uh, when it got, uh, move over, baby, or move over, over, let Jimmy take over. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, he, and we went to the solo. He jumped back off the mic stand and grabbed the guitar. And the whole place. <laughs> It was crazy. We went out of our minds. And uh, there he was. And I had my little insomatic camera and I ran up to the stage and it was, you know, he was five feet from me. 
And I took, they didn't really have you security then. I want to take some photos. Nobody bothered me. Nobody was like crowded up to the stage. Everybody was in their seat. And I took, you know, went through the entire, all three flash cubes. One, two, three, four. Next flash cube. One, two, three, four. <laughs> next flash cube. I don't know. And I sent the film in a Kodak and they sent oh, no. me a, uh, a letter back apologizing that they oh, destroyed no. the film and a coupon for a free roll. I thought, you bastards. <sighs> So I didn't have any photos from that. You should frame that coupon and put it right next to Billy Gibbons. <laughs> exactly. But that was an amazing. Well, lucky again. I'm I'm older and I'm really happy about it because I got to see. We know where music's at today, but really a lot of the things that formed it, I was I was lucky enough to see some of those elements. Front row seats. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was so great. Billy Gibbons, I was in like fourth row when I saw him do hammer-ons and, and the pinch harmonics. And um, What did you see him do? Because a lot of people talk about how he actually was one of the two players that were on the record for doing those two-handed hammer-ons before Eddie Vinnie. Yeah. When he did. Although, although there is another. Steve Hackett. Yep. Genesis. Funny though, it just didn't sound the same as Mr. Van Halen when Steve. No, it didn't. Eddie, uh, Eddie owns that. Yeah. No matter what, I was doing it starting in seventy, about seventy-five, which may have been before he was doing. It. No matter, he owns it, and I would never be so stupid as to try to assert anything that ridiculous. But he. That's cool. He so just, when you heard it, you knew you knew what it was. Most people are like, "What is that?" Oh man, I thought, "Oh my shtick." It's gone. <laughs> He's got my shtick. If it was and, anyone's shtick, it was definitely gone after Van Halen. But he did it, he, and he had already gone farther with it than I had. And I was glad to hear him because I realized there was even more possibilities, which inspired me to go even farther with it. And uh, it, was a, it was a great thing. So you when know? you were at sound checks with Eddie Van Halen on that tour and such, what, what, was, what were your impressions of his tone and stuff back then? You're like, you're like standing right next to those amps. Oh, yeah. It was, it was always, um, there was a casualness to the whole procedure. Picked it up, hit the chord, it's perfect. The sound is just awesome. And uh, and again, I think, in my humble opinion, he played in a lot of club shows, a lot of club shows. And uh, playing club shows for years really does something to you. The Beatles did, Van Halen did. I'm not comparing right. myself to that, but I played oh, yeah. thousands of club shows. It really does ingrain this sensibility into you but it was it was just so casual and fun and just smiling laughing having a good time hits that chord and my god it was just uh angelic this tone that came out of that thing just perfect you know isn't that amazing wow now so now cycling back forward you finally get to meet dude i mean you met him before but this is a work call for david lee roth tell me about that afternoon well i went out to his house he lived in pasadena when they flew me out because i got done with the ingve talis tour got home and they called me hey you want to why don't you come out right away so okay so I, I kept my apartment in buffalo with all my stuff and i just grabbed my suitcase and gone so i had a 1977 ford pinto the yellow one it was kind of a mess nice. so i kind of left it behind and my brother took it over and he sold it for me i had bought bought it from him originally and he always said he knew where it was parked because there's always pieces of it laying there it was just a complete mess <laughs> and the one the fake tire they give you when you buy the car so you're only supposed to drive to the gas station if you get a flat tire i had that on the car for two years because i was so poor so i left my my fake tire yellow falling apart 1977 Ford Pinot, went to the airport, got on the plane, got off the plane. That night, there was paparazzi <laughs> taking pictures of me and Dave. So I went from the Pinto to paparazzi in less wow. than 24 hours, which is a mind-numbing thing. And at the time, you really have to go back to that time. Dave was the biggest rock star in the world. Yeah. Done deal. 
He was the man. I mean, there was they nobody were bigger than him. 1984, yep. which was the John Poffer teacher, all that stuff. And he was just, a, it was just huge. So whenever we'd hang out with him, it was always an amazing thing because they watch people respond. They would freak. I wasn't there, but he was, uh, when we were doing the record, uh, we were at Capitol Studios uh, in, in Hollywood for, for, for a lot of the Eat em and Smile stuff. I think it was Eat em and Smile. It might have been, no, it was uh, some of the skyscraper stuff. But still, he was, everybody knew who he was. And Steve Vai was out jogging with him one time. Somebody pulled over and asked for directions. He said, hey, buddy, you know where to... And so Dave, completely deadpan, walks up to the car, puts his hand, leans into the window. He's yeah, you go up here, you know, two blocks, and you make a left. And, and, and while the people are watching him talk, you can see a dawn on them that they're realizing who it is. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. He, but he was really comical and uh, just genius uh, with the way he carried himself and uh, how it all worked. And uh, I learned so much from him. Any it, funny moments or stories with him in spe specific that inspired you or taught you? <laughs> oh, I mean, the man. guy's a half comedian to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Well, we would sit in the basement and tell stories. Um, we first got together. Um, the thing, the original guitar player was supposed to be Steve Stevens. That didn't work out. Uh, Steve was going to stick with Billy Idol. So I told Dave, I know another Steve. And sure enough, Steve Vai brought him in. Dave loved him. Steve's had that element from Frank Zappa of comedy. and you know, But he was also a spectacular, incredible player, too. So... It was it was the perfect guy for that. So uh, Dave gave Steve and I the quest to go out and find the drummer. So we went out and found Greg Bissonette. We auditioned a bunch of guys. The moment Greg walked in, we knew he was the guy before he even played. It was incredible. So uh, so we uh, would sit in Dave's basement and you know, just go over songs, make up parts, and Dave would be upstairs and we'd, we'd be jamming a thing. He'd come down and say, "Yeah, it's, that's pretty good. That sounds like a verse. Now come up with a chorus." And we come on. How about we go to this? Go, yeah, that's good. The chorus. Now give me a bridge. You know. This is you and Greg and Steve. Yeah. Down there jamming. And sure, we put, put all the eat em and smile stuff together like that. And uh, then uh, at the end of the day, Dave would come down. He had a garage full of beer from the Us Festival left over, which was years earlier. And Pasadena gets pretty hot. So he the said, beer. I'll take that beer and put it, take it with him. Yeah, we're not going to leave it behind. So they know, I don't know who put it in there. I don't think Dave personally took it, but it ended up in his right. garage. And uh, But it was skunk. It had been in the garage for about oh, three yeah. years. And, or more, and uh, but we didn't care. We did the skunk beer, sitting around the campfire, so to speak, telling stories about the old days. And it was amazing to hear Dave's early tales of all the stuff that went on and all the shenanigans with uh, Van Halen. Dave told a story one time of how he, um, the Van Halen guys were playing outside somewhere in uh, some open-air concert, and the audience is waiting. A plane goes by. The four guys jump out of the plane parachute down because you can see like this metal this field from where all the people were crowd goes nuts goes crazy a van pulls up they all jump in the van drives to the stage they jump onto the stage they? they were in the van the whole time <laughs> <laughs> but it looked like they were the parachuters exactly dragging parachutes on the stage <laughs> <laughs> but he did a million little things like that it was just showbiz like i remember when we would see him they were doing and everybody wants some on the van halen tour in 1980 and they would fog the stage with dry ice fog about two feet thick and Alex would be doing, doo, 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 doing the jungle drums you know for the beginning of you know, that whole thing yeah. and uh, unknown to everybody until about two or three shows in when we figured out what was going on a crew guy would crawl under the smoke and place at the exact same spot on stage a rolled up joint and so uh, in the middle of the thing when, when the whole <laughs> thing breaks down 
to the jungle drums again. Doom, doom, you know, it's, you know, uh, uh, Dave starts, you know, making noise, stuff like that, and the fog starts to dissipate. I was like, hey, 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 Al, hold on a second, Al, wait a minute, wait. He looked down, and there's a joint. He looked down, hey, because people are always throwing stuff on stage. <laughs> Usually a, a joint would come up every night, but you couldn't predict it. So he made right. sure to make it predictable, and he made sure the joint was in the right place at the right spot every night so the shtick would work. He'd go, hey, hold on a second, He'd bend over, pick it up. What the hell is this? And I'm like, ah, people didn't, <laughs> you people in Oklahoma know how to burn. And then the guy would come out with a lighter and he'd take a puff of it. Ah, say, and then everybody wants some. It was just incredible. And we would laugh our asses off every night, even though we saw it every single night. It was still hilarious. I just love the image of this crew guy crawling on his tummy through the two feet of <laughs> dry ice. Oh, brilliant. But uh, yeah, stuff like that. And it always, you know, I'm a musician. I'm a, I play. But in order to present what I play, you need to, a little bit of showbiz in there. You know, you got the shoegazer guys that just sit and don't do much and hope that their music sends you. And sometimes it does. And sometimes that's entertainment in itself when there is no showmanship. Sometimes that's a good thing, too. But I, I just love the idea, and I caught early on from Hendrix, and then later the whole Van Halen experience, uh, that uh, the idea that you do something and uh, present it. So Steve and I would do the guitar battle on the Eat em and Smile tour. You right, can probably right. Google it. Um, yeah, I think I saw that show. So, now, first of all, what was the what was your plans for the staging when you guys went out for the first David Lee Roth solo tour? I mean, that, you were on a runway that was like way out into the audience, and Steve was on the other side, correct? It was giant. Yeah, to run from all the way stage left to all the way stage right, that was about uh, geez, that was about thirty or forty yards. It yeah. wasn't. It was. It was big, maybe more. And uh, of course, I was in shape then. I was I weighed one hundred and fifty pounds, and I could zoom it back and forth. It was no problem at all. But uh, but we had a ride, and Dave gave us complete free reign. Do your thing. So you're wait, when you're out in the front of that runway, you're having like your own set of monitors out there. How do you even hear the rest of the band? Sometimes you had to play by sight. Right. Quite honestly. There was times when I'm all, all the way over on Steve's side of the stage. I can hear a rumble, but I kind of had to play by sight. I kind of knew where I was. And, and it was before in-ear monitors. We had monitors all over the place, but, you know, it was a... I've never been a guy that was uh, dependent on monitors. I kind of had my tone. It was over there. I heard it. I didn't want any bass in the monitors I, I, so we could kind of get it. We were at the beginnings of a lot of new technology right then. So yeah. the, the tour started summer of 86. I remember the first Bradshaw switching system Steve I had. And uh, they'd lose power and they would lose all his memory and had to reprogram it three or four times before the show every time. Oh, no. It was hellish. And I had my little Pierce preamp with one box on off distortion on distortion off we used to migrate hey you guys having fun over there <laughs> cables are flying and people are panicking trying to reprogram everything and i got my on and off <laughs> and that was the two things i had so it was uh oh, quite an great. experience but steve and i we were both uh, did our solo you know i did my bass solo thing he did his guitar solo thing then dave come up with came up with the idea well you know we should do make it like a tractor pull like a battle of the you guys battle each other and so and the solo ended up where I think uh, I think Steve starts it off. And then I come up behind him, grab his guitar and stop, and then I play. And he's like, what, what the hell are you doing? And he comes up behind me and stops me. And he goes, what? what the hell are you doing? And the next thing you know, we're chasing each other around. And it became, to people that didn't want to hear our our notage and widdly widdly bits, it was it was fun and entertaining, you know? So a, a lot of that was was Dave. He really, um, he sold it. He, he, he knew how to make it uh interesting to everybody any other showmanship things he would do on that tour that you're, that stand out in your mind well i used to do a one like really i had a hard falsetto i've since lost that do the really high high screams he would go out to the boxing ring in the uh, uh, middle of the arena 
they take them out there in an anvil case. They roll them out. So <laughs> the audience wouldn't even know it's him. They roll them out and put them. He'd Hilarious. get out, sneak out of it, and then all of a sudden, there's Dave in the middle of the arena. And uh, so we did a thing back and forth. So I tried this a super low voice, you know, and then at some point I went to hit the high scream and I hit it so hard. I did actually pass out one night. Whoa. That we, we were doing this thing where I would like fall backwards and Steve would catch me. But I remember he caught me and it just said, I was out. I, I was actually went unconscious just for a couple of seconds, but I, I went out. It was yeah. hilarious. And, uh, and we'd uh, end up, uh, David, of course, We'd go into a little soul thing, and David work his way back, and well, it's just a. I got, okay. I've got a couple of pro professionally shot videos of that show, but I don't own them, so I can show my friends. They come over for a couple of drinks, but I, I can't post it anywhere because I think, That's I think great. Dave owns it. I'll be over tomorrow night. <laughs> now, Dave sure loved your song "Shy Boy," and so did all the fans. You play a little bit of that. That was, was that from. You used yeah. to play that with Talus. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple things that were in it. And the original talus that uh, we ended up using that part of it. Uh, so so basically, uh, we changed it from the original talus version was just basically bass, guitar, and drum, and the singer, the guitar singer, guitar player was singing it. So we didn't do a lot of interplay. It was just basically a song. The bass got a yeah. little wild in some of the uh, verses with some some motion. But when Dave got a hold of it, we we planned out a thing. Second verse, we got that. <laughs> Start with just a, which is it on the fifth and fourth frets. I know, and you're for the fourth fret, you're putting your hand over the neck. Yeah, then I, I flip my hand over the top. And a lot of times, it wasn't just showbiz stick. When I take my hand, the normal position where you're, you can see your wrist, and flip it over where you see the back of your hand on your left hand fretting hand. My hands actually kind of flatten out when I do that, so it actually. When you reach over the top, it actually, yeah. even though it's a little bit showbiz, it actually serves some function. Kind of get it with clearer harmonics or something? I think. So, because um, you could do without doing without any motion. People that listen to this can't see what's happening. But then when your hand is flying around between those two notes, it looks like it's something way more difficult and way way more intriguing to somebody in the audience that doesn't know what you're oh, doing. Yeah, well, you could be in the back of the arena and see that. Yeah, see, so like, what in the world is going on with that? You know, you put a little bit of showmanship in it. And again, uh, yeah. especially for non-musicians, because, you know, everybody listening to this is a musician. We all know each other. We all get into each other's shows for free. And, you know, we all, you know, we, we were the insiders, really. We forget sometimes that we're the insiders. And most of the people that we really want in that audience are not musicians. When musicians are just playing to other musicians, it's kind of incestuous, you know? So when you're playing to regular old nine to five people, Joe Sixpack or, you know, whatever, who's just out to have a great time and wants to see some entertainment, putting a little bit of frosting on the cake really goes a long, long way. And that's why to this day, no matter where I go, uh, somebody brings up Edom and Smile or has an Edom and Smile record for me to sign in English or in Spanish or something. So it's a, the, the album really did have a lot of impact. And it was 30 years ago last week, Whoa. July, that I came out here to, uh, that the whole thing started. And a lot of that ways of doing things comes from being forced and confined to do something a certain way and coming up with different variations on the same damn thing. For example, we'd play Stealing by Uriah Heap back in the club days. It's pretty much the whole song other than the bridge. And that's three notes, and we had to play it usually twice a night. We get away with doing it only once a night, but every almost every single night we play this song, seven nights a week, 
One time we did 21 nights in a row. One time we did three shows wow. in the same day. And so... So after a while, my hand would naturally flip over the top of the neck. Or I would do it like... Octaves. Right a a million it. ways to do... Doing it in chords. Just so, some way to get variation without losing the foundation that you need. So yeah, Steve had a, uh, a song called uh, For the Love of God. Amazing song, great song. And uh, he's one of those players uh, that I, I envy for the fact that they can do the, they do that same thing every night. Pretty much the same solo. Variations on it that are subtle. <clears throat> and then he has parts that, of course, improvise. But generally, he does a lot of the same stuff every night. Like classical players. You got to play that piece exactly right all the time. There's no really, no jazz improvisation here. <laughs> right. So for him to do that, uh, he, he really wants everything around him precisely in the right little spot it's supposed to be. So first time after Eat Him Smile, years went went by, and then we finally got together and I did some did some tours with him as a bass player. And when I, I never heard the song before, I didn't wasn't familiar with Steve's solo work, so I didn't know. So when I learned it, it's just basically. Or however it goes, but but it's a real simple melody over basic bass notes. So the first time I'm playing it. What's that? I go, yeah, I just did a passing. He goes, no, no, no. Is that on the record? I go, no, that's just I did a passing. He goes, no, no, that's, that's, that's not how it goes. Go, oh, oh, so you want it exactly like the record. I got, so I go, oh, he wants it exactly like the record. So that was a challenge because I don't play like that. I don't, you know, you know, together, we, every night we played, it was a, you know, foundations are the same. Of course, it has to be the same chords or the same structure, basically. But it's always a heavy improvise. So it forced me to come up with a way to just either be just rock solid and do no variation, and then, you know, I'd be, you know, and just be, you know, having my right hand over there doing stuff and, you know, making it a little bit more interesting for, for people to watch. But Steve alone, is, I didn't want to detract from what he was doing. And it was his show and his name on the ticket, so I, I wanted to do my best for him. And whenever I do play with somebody else, do you want me to do my shtick? Do you want me to back you up? Do you want to fall somewhere in the middle? Just let me know, and that's what I'm happy to do. And uh, so for... Um, even, even in sessions, a lot of times people hire me. They want me to do you know, some fancy schmancy stuff. I go, well, do that if you want, but let me get a solid bass one in on a take. And then later on, if you want to pick and choose, then we can go nuts later. But So I was really pleased when uh, we played the, the Astoria show in London that was on DVD. And uh, Steve was real happy with the way everything fell together. And so I, when he was happy, I was happy. I, it was important for me to get it right for him. It's so many great guitarists you've worked with. Let's talk about Mr. Big and that Paul Gilbert. Yeah, guy. Paul. What's Paul like to be in a band with? Paul's great because he's a, he's a little human walking encyclopedia of songs and licks and information. And, uh, you know, if, if, he, if he hears about a song, we start talking about some some song from the old days that he may not have heard. He's going to, we know he's going to go home on YouTube it and tomorrow he'll know it. You know, just to, just to jam it and fool around with it, you know. So he's a, he's just a nonstop attitude of a 14 year old kid who's just discovering music which is great he's Absolutely. always always on it always at it and then he's and his idea of improvement isn't to play faster it's to play wider you know so like more stuff more styles and he just got into this whole blues thing where he's listening to all these ancient old blues guys just picking out what made them the way they are and what what voicings they were doing and picking up stuff and he really uh researches it deep 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 yeah. deep 
and hits it hard. And he loves music completely, and uh, it shows in his playing. And he's, you know, uh, to play in a band with people that are righteous and uh, together and responsible and are going to be on time and in tune, it's it's a great thing. I've been in a situation where it wasn't like that, and it got us hellish. But fortunately, Mr. Biggs generally was like that. We, we, we had it very together. Our manager at the time, Herbie Herbert, said he walked into the dressing room. He said, he, he, he says, I must have stood there 20 minutes before all three of you guys, with me, Pat, and um, Paul in a room. Pat had his drumsticks, and he was looking down at the pad, doing his uh, rudiments. I'm, I'm, I'm with my bass. I'm looking down at <laughs> the thing, warming up. Paul's over in the corner. He's, he goes, it was 20 minutes before anybody looked up and even saw me there. <laughs> We're all so into warming up for the stage, you know, anything like that. So he's a, a great uh, experience to work with Paul. He's one of my, again, one of my favorite yeah. people. What's he like on stage? or what? Are, you know, you guys have been doing a lot of tours in recent years, right? Shows, the last couple of years? Yeah, it's usually a comedy show. It's usually That's meant it. to be a uh, light. And I think a lot of that comes from that Van Halen thing. Paul was way into Van Halen also with that, that kind of, you know, let's have fun with it or let's laugh about stuff or let's try some stuff and have it be a goof and uh, a casualness that Van Halen brought to a lot of bands. Because when, when Van Halen came out, I had to keep, make, keep, keep making this about them, but it is such an iconic band. You know, it was all skinny ties and haircut 100 and having 17. And all of a sudden this giant Van Halen bulldozer came along and turned it back into... You know, something was fun and a riot and there were girls and it was cool. Right. And you could drink and hang and party, you know, it was cool. Musicians are funny off the road, too. I remember you were telling me uh, some crazy stories of Talus tours or something. And, like, you're driving from one gig to the other. Do you remember that time? <laughs> I think you guys, like, were throwing stuff at yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd probably do, be doing time today. Because <laughs> the crew guys would have, usually have beer in the truck, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I... I Uber everywhere. I don't ever drink and drive. But back then, it was we were we were, we were idiots, and uh, <laughs> fair enough, uh, guilty as charged. But the crew guys would, you know, I, and I really couldn't stop them if I said you crew guys because I wasn't drinking in the car. But the crew guys were, and I probably could have said you guys can't have any open container, blah, 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 but they would have just snuck it in anyway. So we're gonna why, you know? So they're in the truck, and they would pull up next to us and throw a, something out, and then we'd pull up next to them and throw something out, and then we'd pull over the side of the road at a shop and get a couple dozen eggs and throw them out, and, <laughs> and, and all through the Phoenix desert with them. The eggs are, are hardening on the windshield of the truck. And we, uh, it was just goofy, frat boy, teenage, stupid, dangerous nonsense that I would never allow anybody to do today. But yeah. <laughs> at the time, you know, back in the day, we did a lot of stuff. We just didn't know. Nobody wore a helmet on a bicycle. You know, we didn't, you know, there were... One time, I guess you guys had beer bottles in the car. You want to tell this story? Well, I, uh, well, well, apparently, well, we don't want to keep having to pull over because the guys are drinking. And I got to, you know, when you're drinking, you got to pee. So the guys are, we had, a, we were in the band was in like a nine passenger van. We're sitting in the back of it. And the crew guys were like uh, driving and running shotgun. And these guys were throwing stuff back and forth. We were laughing about it and stuff. And it was all funny and that. But they had to pee. So you generally pee into an empty beer can. Oh, man. And then we lean out the window to let it go. We make sure, God, if one drop of that comes in, we're going to kill you. So one of them took a condom one time <laughs> and peed in the condom and tied it off. And we pulled up to the truck. And we're in the back watching this. So I, honestly, I, Your Honor, I had nothing to do with it. And they pulled up to the truck and threw it. And the guy, I want to say his name because he's a famous sound man now. <laughs> Somebody just told me hello from him the other day. But he was our sound man at the time. Hilarious guy, an amazing sound man. He's got the window open. He looks over all of a sudden, boosh, straight in the face. And they're looking for it on the ground. I go, what the heck was that? What the heck was that? And we had to try it with, it with the roaring of the truck and the wind at 80 miles per hour. It's a rumor! 
you know, it was just oh god, they got so pissed off at us, so they were throwing full beer cans at the van, man, and uh, but it hit him right oh, in the face. Man. It didn't break; it just kind of bounced off. But <laughs> bounced just off knowing, his that, face. knowing that enough, he has no idea how lucky he is, man. Oh, I know, that didn't break. So generally stupid, frat boy, ridiculous, retarded stuff that I would never allow anyone to do. But it is tough to restrict the crew guys because you know you can't really you lay rules now. They're just gonna sneak around. So the band guys, you know, we were, I got a show to do. So I'll drink after a show, but morning of and day of and everything, I I, I can't do it. I Didn't can't. you take a, a drop of water after that moment or something? Yes. Well, when the, one day when one of the guys had the beer cans out, arms, reached out the van as far as he could to empty the pee out, uh, <laughs> our drummer, the amazing and incredible Mark Miller, this guy was mind-blowing drummer. As a matter of fact, I actually flew him out to for the, the Dave gig to try out for it, but his heart wasn't in it. You know, he had a, had a beautiful wife at home. He wasn't into the rock and roll lifestyle. It's not his thing. And he was, wasn't into the partying. And we can see as he's sitting there and it's getting wilder and wilder. It's just throwing and people are hooting and hollering and yelling. He's, he's sitting quietly in his seat. And I know he's getting hotter and hotter and getting more and more angry. So I'm sitting directly behind him. I got my little iced tea back there in the little cup. And uh, Randy, our, our, our light man, was leaning way out the thing. And finally, Mark spoke. He goes, he's pouring this piss out the window. Pouring the pee out the window. He goes, if one drop of that comes in there, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I don't know what made me think of it. I took the top off my iced tea, dipped my finger in it, and put a little tiny drop of iced tea. That's it. That's it. That's it. He went out of his mind. He's like, oh my God. That's it. And Mark is the sweetest guy who would never swear. Uh, cool, uh, unbelievable drummer. People get up close to the stage, they want to watch the show. Mark would start playing, and they'd be backing up like, holy Jesus. He would snap the pedal of the foot pedal in half. Damn. And he was just this frightening. His time was amazing to a perfect time. His fills always came in on one. He was just a phenomenon of nature. I, I, I'm sad that he didn't continue on a rock, but I'm also, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he went uh, home and uh, he lives in Rochester, New York now, and he's got a wonderful family and a great life. He start, started playing again. I think you can maybe be able to Google him, yeah. find Mark Miller. There's some surprising amount of players up there. You know, I just did a show recently triple bill and lou graham was on the bill up and we we're up in the new york area yeah it was like yeah, two lou weeks graham ago didn't you play with him back in the day lou graham from foreigner no they were a little bit of a competitor to talus a band called black sheep it was louis grammatical before he was uh, lou graham interesting we would uh, talus would play some of the same clubs matter of fact we play mcvans on hurdle avenue and somebody just posted a picture and i, I reposted on my facebook of Jimi hendrix playing in mcvans yeah. and it's the same place because they had the low ceiling and i remember it was years earlier of course when hendrix played there but the, the owner found some old pre World War II paint in the basement, and he painted the ceiling the night before we played. And the paint was, you know, it's probably still wet if the place still was up. And my hair was sticking to the paint <laughs> on oh, the man. ceiling. But that was it. And then the, the, that beam of that thing was right was in the photo with Jimmy. So that was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I saw that on your Twitter. Yeah. So and, uh, uh, yeah, Lou Graham was another one. Uh, Chuck Mangione, he came from that area too. And uh, one of the Three Dog Night guys was from Buffalo. Now you, are, we, we of course we got to talk about. Your current guitarist, the great Richie Kotzen. Yeah, Richie has really uh, come into his own. I, when we started the Winery Dogs, um, I'm lucky. I, I had Eat Him Smile, David Lee Roth. Thank you for what powers that be. Great. Then I started another band, Mr. Big. We, had, we ended up having a number one single. So, you know, to get hit with a wand twice, magic wand twice, I, I'm, 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 that's amazing. Uh, so I'm, I'm forever grateful. Well deserved, I would say. Well, thank you. So for the Wandering Dogs, you know, I've already had my, I've had some good tastes of it, you know, 
I would like one of the, my sub goals in the winery dogs to be to let the world know about Richie Kotzen because I've right. always I've known about him from the beginning there when he first came out to L.A. and he's always been great. But but he could you know sing like Paul Rogers and play guitar great. So we actually had him briefly in, in, in Mr. Big when Paul quit for a little while towards the end of the yep. first person for, version of the band. But um, so uh, and I did a couple other things to him, with him too. We we got the, we he had a solo kind of record out and played in Japan with the Rolling Stones. We went, I went with him and we did five shows opening for the Stones in Japan. That was before the Winery Dogs. So sure enough, when Mike Portnoy came to me, I don't know why I didn't think of Richie. Because initially, you know, we, we, uh, we talked with John Sykes a little bit, but it, it, it wasn't going anywhere. So we decided, well, let's just find somebody and start a three-piece band. And uh, completely separate from that whole idea. And uh, Eddie Trunk ended up mentioning Richie and I slapped myself on the forehead. Oh, of course, Richie is perfect. And I, you know, I had just seen him recently and everything. And so we got together and uh, it was a... Uh, automatically things fell together. So I put enough bands together, but enough situation to know that this is going to be fine. He's playing with his fingers now, finger style Notice picking. That. yeah, yeah. Which is pretty cool, because I'm doing a lot of, not only the cross, but between two. All this stuff. And so Richie, a lot of his licks are built around moves that are similar to that. So we actually, it ends up being a good match. Yeah, and um, it's great to see. Yeah, he's playing all these Telecasters. I guess his signature line. Yeah, yeah, super tasty with no pick. Yeah, it's a, it's a, and tone wise is really unique. But the thing that people, I wish more people knew. So I'll, I'll talk about it here now, which might help. You know, uh, the Poison guys are good guys, and they're friends of mine. And Bobby Doll, I know I see him around, and a CC, I used to hang with him a little bit. Wonderful guy. Uh, I know, I, you know, so I. I have no disrespect in me for them. I, I, they, 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 they have what they have, and they took what they had and made a huge success out of, out of God bless them. I don't think Richie was the right guy to be in that band ever, but at some point somebody decided that it would be a good idea, and it happened. You know, it was a big break for Richie. Poison was a huge band at the time. Not my thing. It doesn't happen to be my thing. It doesn't mean I, I, I don't wish them well. A lot, right. of, a lot of musical bands are... I love Chris Squire, and I loved Yes, but I really... They, the music really wasn't my thing, you know, yep. and it doesn't mean, you know, it just means that just that that didn't quite fit me. So I, I preface saying this because I don't want anyone to think this is any kind of a slight or disrespect to Poison, even though they're not considered like a musician's type band. They are a huge success. You can't deny it. And I'm, and I'm, I'm happy for them. They worked their asses yep. off for that. You know, they I remember them being like on the strip with their cassette recorder playing their songs for people walking by, you know. So they, they, they really worked it. So when Richie got in that band and whatever happened and he left, Richie always gets this thing wrapped around him. Like, oh, he was a guitar player for Poison. Well, people forget that Richie played with Stanley Clark and Lenny White and basically, for the most part, replaced Alan Holdsworth to, to play in that band. Because uh, Alan, I guess, had the gig initially and they didn't do it, so they were looking for another guitar player and they got Richie. So they never say, yeah, Richie, yeah. He, he played with Stanley Clark and Lenny White. And they say, no, he played in Poison. And again, I don't, I, I apologize if, if anyone thinks that's a slight against Poison. It's not. It's not. I'm glad for them. But that's the kind of player Richie is. And after he played in that band with Stanley Clark and Lenny White, there was a thing to his playing that he got where he'll play notes that I know no rock guy would go for those notes. But it's not jazz, so it's not going to turn the rock people off. But I hear definitely hear his note choice, 
like the Jeff Berlin note choice when we were on we were on tour together, you yeah. and I. He Jeff would pick notes that I, I, I listened to again. I would never go to that note from there. <laughs> and if I did, it would sound wrong anyway. But for some reason he does it and it sounds right. I don't get it. That's to me, that's what a lot of jazz is. This is over my head. I know it is, and I don't really get it. And to to people who don't get it, it just sounds like random notes. You know, people who don't understand will think it's random. Because well, I, love it. well, I love it when a great rock player makes the note sound right, makes it sound rocking. And you're right. That's exactly what Richie does. Exactly. So he's got that little bit of flavor in that. It really kind of pushes the band into a different uh, area. Super soulful singer, too. Great voice. Great voice. And uh, this new record, he kills. He's just annihilated on it. Yeah, I interviewed him at his studio once. And, uh, you know, one-on-one guitars. Just, you just get so struck by his tasteful playing and the legato, too. Yeah. A beautiful legato thing happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really unique uh, thing. And a lot of the guys, like the shredder types, like Paul is a really precise and a really, that pick stroke is really hard. And that string mashes into the, and he plays, you know, really as a definitive tone. Unlike Richie's, who's is a, it's kind of a medium strength, but it's all the notes kind of run together in a different way. Completely unlike Steve Vai, who has a whole other way of approaching it, and they really are such distinctively different players. Tony McAlpine too, another one's completely different. That I had the good fortune of working with. Yeah. So it's a, in the Winery Dogs, that particular style just adds an element to the band. I think that that moves it into a different area. It makes it uh, doesn't it takes it out of cliche land in a lot of ways. And I love to pull back and hang on and hold notes and let Richie do his thing because Mike's a more aggressive drummer so a lot of times if I'm going if I'm doing what I would normally might do if the drummer was keeping time it would be a complete mess so I sometimes I'll, I'll be the I'll kind of try to hold it together That's, let, let yeah. Mike and Richie do that thing now you know I love your intro on You Saved Me oh uh, that yeah I was just kind of uh, fooling around with it it was going to be a whole piece that I was working on a bass and it was going to move around and then this was going to go from and move also I'd forgotten it since then but I had a thing worked out but the beginning of it I had the, the most and when I just read grabbing that and then doing the pedal tones underneath it now I didn't know if I could do that live because live you always play 10 times harder so this it's gonna to have to go through the entire song, pretty much. Right. <laughs> so that's gonna that's gonna kill me. Uh, l- luckily, I, I I got it to the point where I could just solidly do that for you know a good five minutes, no problem. But it's a cool thing for a guitar player to move over. Yeah, you did a, that was a very richy thing. I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) But you have that right hand uh, technique a lot where you you are not only dependent on your pick, you're also finger picking and 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 your slapping on guitar just still blows my mind. But you know, I I love that the fingers involved. I remember this one Jeff Beck quote where he talked about just how he kept dropping the pick and that's when you just, you know what, I'm a fingers player. And that does start happening after a while. You start, cool. 
you show up somewhere, you're like, man, I went 20 years with always having a pick in my pocket and I don't have one today and I, I don't, I don't miss it. Weird. I'd make <laughs> yeah. picks up to give away. I would never use them. (laughs) Well, you play tons of guitar. You have like baritone guitars and stuff. Yeah, I got uh, on the wall behind you is a a baritone Strat from the Fender Custom Shop. It's called a Subsonic. Oh, shit. I want that. The brownish one you see there, sorry for the listeners who can't see, that's a custom Yamaha 12-string baritone. One more guitar later, the blue one, that's another custom 12-string baritone. And then behind you on this side is a a Viet, Joe Viet. Brilliant uh, luthier in uh, totally. downstate New York. Yeah. And that's that's his uh, 12-string baritone, too. And then there's a purple Strat. It's a $150 Guitar Center Made in China Strat mm-hmm. that somebody gave me as a as a Christmas present one time. A buddy of mine came over, a great player that I know. I said, hey, we got your Christmas. What? It's a Strat. Or, hey, cool. We laughed about it. So when Billy Gibbons came over to play, I think he might have grabbed the wrong guitar because he opened it up. He was kind of, oh, man, it's just, it was a Telecaster. It was strung really heavy, and it was there's no give to it all. And he goes, I'm not sure about this guitar. And... Uh, so I said, well, try this one. So what I had done, and I wrote a couple songs like that, I'd taken this $150 Strat and tuned it down B to B, so it's baritone, but with the original factory strings on it. So the strings are flopping around on it. And I wrote a bunch of songs like that because it's kind of a really cool tone. you got to turn it up loud and the strings are floppy and kind of a Neil Young. Bend them out the window. Yeah, exactly. So we actually ended up playing the track on that guitar. And whenever you, people hear the track, it's called uh, A Little Bit Will Do It To You Every Time is the name of the song off the uh, Holy Cow record. The moment... He starts playing. I ask people, who do you think that is a guitar? They go, Billy Gibbons? <laughs> Instantly, you can know it's him. $150 Strat with the strings falling off. Yeah, with the original factory strings falling off. What was he plugged into when he was here? Oh, uh, in the pod. Just a little red pod? Yeah, no problemo. Steve yeah. I, when he played on record too, he just plugged into the pod. It really is true. I mean, it's your, it's your tone. I, you can, you know, when, when you're, you, you, you fine tune a lot of stuff, especially when you're playing live. And a lot of it is psychological though. You think, you know, oh, I got the, I got this wrong pedal. Oh, I plugged the right one. Oh, that's much better. When there really isn't a lot of difference or maybe not at all, but in your mind, the mind is a terrible thing. I, sometimes you can really, <laughs> we can really get to you, but plant that seed of uncertainty in there and you need all kinds of things to correct it again. Tell us about your friend Chuck Wright. He's been having this great jam session on Wednesday nights at Hollywood Free. It's like an only in L.A. kind of thing. Oh, right? it's so great. Every city should do this. Should Everybody should copy the format city to city. Basically, they get, uh, it's a tight jam, too. You, you know, no pedals. You get on stage, you plug in, you play. No pedals allowed. Great. Yeah. So nobody's... Once in a while, a drummer's got to come up and reconfigure, but even that, they kind of discourage. So they have a band up, and they play their song, and they get off, and the next band is up, and they play their song, and they get off, and there's no time between songs. It's quick, it's fast. They got a, they got an MC up there in between songs. On a break halfway through the night, they do like a puppet show or a burlesque thing or some wacky, crazy magic guy swallowing a sword or something. And uh, But it's it's fast and it tight. Moves. And, and uh, so they get all these different people. They arrange it the week before who's playing what on what song. So they called me. Uh, Nuna Betancourt wanted to do, uh, I guess, a singer from uh, the Swiss. Sweet was there, so they're going to do the Ballroom Blitz. We did Burn by Deep Purple. Something else, too, I forget. First time I played with Nuno together. He was great. Just awesome. Monster. What a great, great player. I, I uh, Unfortunately, I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to him because at the time, Mr. Big was, you know, I didn't have time for many other bands. And I, I knew he was an awesome player and had a reputation that was, uh, you know, sterling, of course. But playing with him was really a great experience. A wonderful, wonderful player and a good guy. And then after that, uh, there's a young lady, a singer. I produced a, an album with her. And her name's uh, Madam Mayhem. She got up and sang a track. And the drummer, Matt Starr, we, we used him. Uh, and Mr. Big, uh, our, our drummer, Mr. Big, uh, unfortunately, Pat can't can't do the whole kit anymore right. due to his uh, condition he's got. So, uh, But he's out on the road with us singing. He's there. He's in the band. Oh, cool. We got Matt to come out and do the heavy lifting. And Matt just did an amazing job with Mr. Big. So, yeah, Chuck Wright, an unsung 
sung Bass Hero, too. I think I believe all that uh, Metal Health uh, record by Quiet Right, I believe that's all him. And that was a great so, yeah. bass tone and some great bass playing on it. Yeah, yeah. He's just They just rocked the house this weekend at uh, Rockin' the Rivers, Yeah, which is a fun festival out in Montana. Excellent. And uh, they post some great photos up there. It's just great. cool. That, I mean, he's getting all you A-listers down there, which is wonderful that people can walk in. It's free. It's a bowling yeah. alley. It's a bowling yeah, alley. it's a bowling alley with enough room for a thing, and it's jam-packed. Yeah, and yeah. I'm telling you, I, know, I, just, I must have run into 20 record company people, music biz people that are all here about it and came down. And they and, and that's how Matt Starr got the gig with uh, Mr. Big. <clears throat> Different jam, but nevertheless, he got up one night. I was at this jam and one drummer got up who was pretty famous and I thought, man, that, that guy kind of left me cold. I was kind of disappointed. Matt gets up, sings and on drums, plays and sings TNT by ACDC perfectly. <laughs> and I'm a stickler with ACDC. Absolutely. Play the way the record goes. And I don't want to hear improv and ACDC. And he nailed it. And I didn't, at the time, we didn't even know the situation with uh, Pat Torpy, unfortunately. But uh, when the time came where, you know, it's time to, uh, you know, if we're going to do this, we might need a drummer to do the double bass drum heavy stuff, you know, and Pat will come out. And he does. He plays drums on a couple songs. So I thought, hey, I got a guy, Matt Starr. And sure enough, he just came in and killed. I'm really curious how you develop that that sort of a thing. Obviously, that's one of your, you can tell in half a second that that's Billy Sheehan when you hear that sound. It's a three fingers. Yeah, it's a how the heck ring middle. Ring, middle, index, ring, middle, index, ring, middle, index, in that pattern. Yeah. So I, and I try never to break that. Even when you're playing straight eighth notes. Yes, I'm playing four. Sixteenths. Now, one lands on a different finger each time, so I'm... Yeah. So it's ring finger, middle finger, index finger, ring finger. So I try to accent, and I have to sit down here for hours sometimes, just go... So it so it doesn't sound like one two three one two three one two three one two three one two three. It sounds one two three four one two three four one two three four one two three four. And that and I still work on that to this day. And I do also do the opposite when I'm playing with four fingers. There's an there's an obvious group of four. I try to do three. So that's a one two three one two three. Try to do threes. So we're always we're never dependent on how many fingers we're using to spell out what grouping I'm plucking now that sounds pretty wacky and crazy and i just got this little i don't know it's kind of a, a probably unhealthy obsession with just getting it right <laughs> and uh i always uh, when i do clinics and stuff i always tell younger players you don't have to play with three fingers or two or four or you can play any if you're getting the notes that you need to get to play the music you love to play don't worry about this but uh, inevitably always somebody is they're fretting over it they're worried about it you know well my three finger technique and they go relax 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 there's nothing i do you can't do is a, a maxim i always bring up and i believe that's true it might take you some time but i believe that's true uh and also you, you really have to take a look at uh, one guy i think it was a clinic i did in chicago he's asking about my three technique three finger technique and three finger this three finger that i go what kind of music do you go he goes i'm a gospel player in a church and i go well that's cool that you're this adventurous and that's the type of music you're playing because you're going to probably come up with some new cool thing that no gospel player ever did before that's cool but also understand it you know don't be losing momentum by getting sidetracked on something that may not be as important as some other elements that you might want to pursue and Im improve upon and having said that i said but if you if you i'll show you anything i can on how to do the three finger thing because i i'm an open book when it comes to showing people stuff but i also really try to do the caveat right up front that you don't need to play like me you don't need to play yeah. fast you don't need to your tone can be your tone your approach can be your but it's just 
just with the thumb or I've been doing a lot of that uh, picking all that so it's thumb index middle ring and then reverse and uh, it's starting to work because a lot of techniques you come up with sitting around in a room like this when you get up on stage they don't work at all <laughs> so it's, a, it's always a thing I've got to worry about because you'll be up there and it's loud and feedback and ah people like that. It doesn't work at all. So, you know, it has to actually be functional. And to go from kind of re deep research, new kind of idea or thing to do for me, anyway, it's deep and new for me, to actually pulling it off on stage is a whole other step. But uh, yeah, the three fingered thing has been a. Kind of my uh, little trademark thing, and you know you can get a you can get a lot of quick notes. But is that necessary for your music? If not, it sure makes the bass solos interesting. There's no more of those jokes yeah. about people like stepping out to use the bathroom and the bass solo comes on or yeah. starting conversations. <laughs> exactly. Or if the bass solo was bad, you sell more T-shirts because at that point they go back to the merch booth. I'm kidding. That's well, right. I assume t-shirt sales sales have been pretty low then, considering <laughs> your bass solos. <laughs> but, uh, that's great. Well, anything else that you wanted to mention coming up? Uh, when, when's the release date for Well, beginning of October, the Wonder Dogs. Streak. Yeah, the record uh, comes out beginning of October. We um, start our tour right around the same time. So we'll be shooting video and rehearsing all the months of September, pretty much, which I'm glad to be doing. And... Uh, my EBS pedal is available. The music store yeah. is everywhere. <laughs> Tell us everything that you're using real quick. I know you, talk, you went over most of it. What's your, what's your string company, Diderio? What strings do you use? Anyway? Oh, uh, uh, Rotosan for years. There's a set yeah. right there uh, next to you with my, my, my face on the cover. Yeah, I've used Rotosan pretty much my whole life. When I first had my first bass, of course, it came with Fender, Fender strings from the factory. Then I replaced them with Gibson Hi-Fi flat wounds. Then one of them broke, and I had a nylon tape wound string for a low E, because yeah, I had the same set of strings on for you know a year. Right. <laughs> we, I didn't know we were supposed to change them. James Jamerson style. And then Joe Hesse gave me a set of his used Rotosound strings. I put them on, and man, this is just so great. So I started, of course, it was very expensive back then, and we would take the old sets off, and I would boil them, and put a drop of detergent in the water, too, to break up any oils, and restring it. The only problem, and it would come right back to life. It would be totally, you know... Just like new, the zing would be there, but wow. they would break easier. Right. So I'd have a couple of broken strings uh, during the show a few times because you, once you take them off and put them back on again, they bend at different angles. But that was one of my first endorsements ever. I went to the NAMM show here in LA, and this lawyer friend of mine he goes, Hey, I'll take you over to Rotosign. He goes, like, I got to warn you, man, they're pretty tough. I don't think you're going to, you know, that maybe they'll give you like a artist price or something, but I don't think you're getting any endorsement, you know. I was still back in Talis, the Dave Leroth thing hadn't happened yet. So I walked up and, uh, uh, Jason Hawkins was like, "Hey, are are you Billy Sheehan? You use our strings, don't you?" And I go, well, "Yeah, I was coming over to say." I goes, "Hey, you want to endorse us?" <laughs> I said, "Sure." <laughs> I looked at Larry. That's the easiest endorsement I ever got. <laughs> and uh, so they were kind enough to uh, supply me with strings. And uh, on strings are an organic kind of a string. The guy, the guy uh, Jason Howe, he built the machines that wind the strings himself. Wow! So he actually created these computer-operated machines. So it really is in the DNA. I mean, it's really a family thing. Yeah, Guthrie Govan uses those on guitar. And I believe Hendrix did too. Oh, that's There's cool. photos of Hendrix holding a uh, Rotosan pack. Yeah, well, Hendrix had so many British ties, you know. Yeah, right. From they really supported him before he blew up here. And all the uh, Chris Squire, uh, that's all Rotosan. Getty Lee, Steve Harris, all Rotosan players. There you go. John Atwistle, for the most part. 
we want to take it out on the little Jeff Beck jam that we used to do every night and cross this country and in Southeast Asia. Let's do it. <laughs> right. Count it There's the No Guitar Is Safe theme song. I'm going to put that on Spotify soon, I promise. And iTunes. Gretchen Men doing those cool harmonics at the top and at the end of the song. Thanks again to Billy Sheehan for being on the show and just for being such a cool, inspiring dude. Love the guy. You don't even have to be a musician to like what he talks about. Yeah, he used to just have us rolling over in the van that's why i had to get at least one of those stories we could have done a whole show just on the frat boy antics but i had to get the beer can out the window story (laughs) hope you enjoyed that love that shit thanks to zoom for the great h6 recorder that we use to record these want to send another shout out to amps and axes a cool guitar podcast i dig and they've been so supportive of my show always doing posts and plugging it and Really appreciate it. I was on that show too, Amps and Axes, and was honored to be a featured guest. Got tons more great shows coming up, folks, every week. Please subscribe. Hit the Facebook. No Guitar is Safe. Thanks again for supporting the show and listening. I think it's a great way to get to know a great guitar player, is to have them sit here with a guitar in front of you with no restrictions. They can play anything they want. They can say anything they want. So, as always, remember, keep it alive until you're 95.